X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, August 26th. It is a good day to find silver linings. That's the question, by the way, that I'm trying to ask. Instead of just asking, how you doing? I'm trying to say, what silver linings are you finding during this time? You'd be surprised how many there are. It's also, of course, a good day to subscribe to The Local. Please do that. Please share it with friends. You can find us on all the platforms through Linktree. That's linkter.e, <laughs> L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E, backslash the local Portland. Today, back in the day, 100 years ago, August 26, 1920, this appeared in the Oregonian newspaper. Women of Portland celebrate Saturday, suffrage victory, luncheon is planned. Whistles and bells will start din at 12 o'clock noon. Many will speak. Ratification of the suffrage amendment will be celebrated in Portland Saturday noon with the blowing of whistles and the ringing of bells. Every city, town, and village in the country will celebrate. Mrs. C.B. Simmons, chairman of the Oregon Equal Suffrage Alliance, said at a meeting of the Alliance yesterday afternoon in the Central Library, at the time that the bells begin ringing at 12 sharp, women of Portland who have been interested in suffrage will stand at attention around their tables in the Crystal Room of the Benson Hotel, where a victory luncheon will be given. Plans for luncheon were formulated at the meeting yesterday. Bishop Walter Taylor Sumner will be asked to lead in prayer. Tributes will be paid to such women as Mrs. Abigail Scott Dunaway, who worked faithfully at the time when Votes for Women was a most unpopular movement. Mrs. Helen Aiken Starrett will talk on the first and last suffrage conventions. Mayor Baker will be called upon. Mrs. Sarah Evans will give a short history of suffrage in the state of Oregon. And Dr. Esther Pohl Lovejoy will speak on the work of women in the future. For reservations, telephone Mrs. Bertha Lowry, Maine 4108. That's the end of the quote of the Oregonian. I think Maine 4108 was the equivalent of a telephone number back in the day. The suffrage movement offers us so many lessons about change-making. One is a reminder about intersectionality and the both fraught and inspiring history about wrestling with both sexual discrimination and racial discrimination in overlapping eras. Notable African-American suffragists such as Mary Church Terrell, Sojourner Truth, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, and Fanny Barrier Williams advocated for suffrage in tandem with civil rights for African-Americans. Another lesson is that very often change happens locally before it happens nationally, as it was with women's suffrage. 19th Amendment was 1920, but suffrage found success in Wyoming in 1890, and before that in the territory of Wyoming, in Colorado in 1893, Utah and Idaho in 1896, Washington State in 1910, California in 1911, Oregon in 1912 along with Arizona and Kansas, Montana in 1914 along with Nevada, New York in 1917, Michigan in 1918, Oklahoma and South Dakota in that same year in 1918, all before the 19th Amendment. And as we look back 100 years later at women's suffrage, we might think about what movements need to foment locally in order to build a national and even international movement. And today, back in the day, August 26, 2016, Colin Kaepernick of the San Francisco 49ers kneeled in protest during the United States National Anthem objecting to racial injustice and police brutality in the United States. Today, we will have your Quick 6 News headlines. B.T. Michaels is here to fill you in on the history of Record Store Day. It's happening this Saturday. And we have an interview with Andrea Walker from Beneficial State Bank with updates on the Black Resilience Fund. X-Ray. 
First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Ted Wheeler has now responded to the violence caused by far-right protesters downtown on Saturday. As we talked about recently, far-right activists engaged in clashes with Black Lives Matter protesters as police watched from the sidelines. Monday evening, Wheeler did release a response to the presence of those activists. His main message, and I'm quoting, white nationalists, particularly those coming to our city armed, threaten the safety of Portlanders and are not welcome here. Some of those white nationalists were members of the Proud Boys, suspected to have come from out of state. Wheeler promised to review police strategy in intervening in violent brawls between protesters. On Saturday, police did not intervene in fights that included bats, pepper spray, and paintball guns. Instead, police over the loudspeaker encouraged protesters to self-monitor. And only after the right-wing activists left did the police declare the gathering an unlawful assembly. Police officials have argued that officers did not step in because they had been stretched thin and exhausted by responding to the nightly protests for racial justice. Mayor Wheeler echoed this sentiment in his written statement. I'm quoting, we are at a critical place where police officers are needed to intervene in protests where police officers themselves are the flashpoint. An anonymous member of the public emailed Wheeler expressing concern with the police bureau's inaction. He responded directly to the email, writing, For days you've been telling me that PPB's response has been overbearing. What specifically would you expect them to do? Your daily dose of coronavirus data. Tuesday saw 247 new cases and 7 new deaths. That brings our case total now confirmed to 25,391 and a death total of 427. Meanwhile, schools are still figuring out how to reopen safely. Portland's Montessori of Alameda School discovered a case of COVID-19. It was discovered on Friday. The classroom used by the infected person will be shut down for two weeks, thoroughly cleaned. Unaffected classrooms will remain open as different classes do not share spaces. As of August 19th, the health authorities recorded 66 cases of COVID-19 related to schools, child care facilities, and camps. Portland General Electric has announced that it's taken on major losses from trading on wholesale electricity markets. They've made some bad trades. They've now since cut their projected annual earnings by 47%. PGE stocks fell by 8.3%. Two anonymous employees have been placed on administrative leave. Maria Pope, CEO of PGE, called the trades ill-conceived. The company has said it will not try to recover the losses by increasing rates to ratepayers. Shareholders will absorb the losses. PGE does not expect layoffs at this point. The estimate of the total losses are expected to be around 155. The estimate of the losses is expected to be plus or minus 155 million dollars. Note the utility companies are not supposed to engage in speculative trading, and experts are saying that these trades, though undisclosed by the company, must have been risky. Universal Preschool will, in fact, be on the ballot in November. It has taken an unusual path to get there. The Preschool for All measure would raise $133 million next year. Funds would be raised through a 1.5% marginal tax on households earning over $200,000 a year and an additional 1.5% tax on households earning over $400,000 a year. Here's a quick version of the unique evolution of the measure. The first measure was put on the ballot by the Portland chapter of the DSA. They've gathered more than the necessary 22,000 signatures to get their measure on the ballot. At the same time, County Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson was working on her own universal preschool measure within the county commission. Commissioner Vega-Peterson and the DSA negotiated a compromise and have combined their measures. To legally put the combined measure on the November ballot, the county commission must adopt and repeal the DSA's original measure by September 3rd. That's just in a week or so. 
Some critics are concerned this maneuver dismisses those who signed the petition for the original measure. Vega Peterson's response, quote, With our strong and broad coalition and widespread community enthusiasm for universal preschool, we are confident this will pass in November. University of Oregon students will have to pay for a full year of housing as long as the campus is open, even if they can't go to class. Students got informed that if they sign up for a dorm room, they have to pay the full room and board, even if in-person classes are canceled. Most Oregon colleges and universities are at this point planning on offering a hybrid of online and in-person classes. University of Portland, along with some other schools, have already committed to a full year of remote learning. August 21st, students at U of O were sent a contract. They had 10 days to decide whether or not to pay for a full year of room and board without knowing if they were going to have classes taught in person or not, or to what degree. School did clarify that if the campus is ordered to be cleared, families will receive some financial relief. Average price of room and board at the U of O now? $15,000. Most other Oregon universities are offering some more flexibility, allowing students to opt out of living on campus in the fall. Quoting the Columbia newspaper, Vancouver Public Schools at last appear poised to retire the chieftain mascot at Columbia River High School. The board of directors on Tuesday indicated their support for retiring the image of a Native American chief after hearing members of local tribes. The mascot has been a source of debate and controversy for decades. The Washington State Board of Education adopted a resolution back in 1993 calling on districts to reevaluate their use of Native American imagery and mascots. They reaffirmed that position in 2012. But in 1994 and again in 2019, students voted overwhelmingly to keep that image. Some good news. The Salem-Kaiser School District is adopting a new social studies curriculum reflecting its diversity. Salem-Kaiser is one of the state's most diverse school districts as well as its second biggest. And over the last three years, the social studies curriculum has been overhauled. New units will include histories of the Pacific Islands, climate change, and immigration in Oregon. Instead of just memorizing dates and names, the curriculum focuses on context for current events, critical thinking, and engagement with students' heritage. The district also committed to hiring more teachers of color. An achievement gap made worse by the pandemic places minority students, specifically Pacific Islander students, English learners, and students experiencing houselessness at a disadvantage. The district is trying to address the needs of those students. Last spring, they sent 30,000 Chromebooks to students, and this year it's looking to send even more. School district is also partnering with cable companies to provide internet discounts to families. Thanks to everybody for doing what they can. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Record Store Day is this Saturday. B.T. Michaels from partner station KXRW is with us to tell us about the local history in our backyard. Hello and welcome to Our Backyard, brought to you by KXRW. I am your host, B.T. Michaels, and folks, can you hear that? That can only mean one thing. It is officially the greatest day of the year. And because 2020 is so fantastic at throwing curveballs, it is now the greatest three days of the year. And of course, I am talking about Record Store Day. And Portland is the reason for the season. For those of you that may not be in the vinyl know-how, Record Store Day is an annual event that debuted April 19th, 2008, and is traditionally held on one Saturday in April and every Black Friday in November. But because of the circumstances we face this year, this had to be moved to August, September, and October. So we're getting three days for the price of one. 
The motive behind Record Store Day was to bring together the fans and the artists in celebration of the culture that was developed around independently owned record stores. On this day, a number of records are pressed specifically for the distribution of stores participating in the event. And what started out as humble beginnings in Baltimore, Maryland, has now spread over the globe and is now recognized in the United Kingdom, Ireland, France, Germany, the Netherlands, and the list goes on and on. So how does Portland, Oregon tie into all of this? Well, to answer that question, we're going to have to go back to the great Garth Brooks barbecue of 1993. In 1993, four major distribution companies came up with a policy that record stores selling used CDs would not gain the support of marketing money. And then a few months after the policy rolled out, Garth Brooks came out in a press conference stating that he did not want his new album sold in CD stores that were selling used albums. So just like with the title of Garth Brooks' album at that time, record stores and used CD stores were left in pieces. Yeah, you could thank my father for that one. And even though the situation doesn't necessarily reflect that of a laugh track, local legend and music millennium owner Terry Courier decided to take the matters into his own grill. Okay, well that one will make sense here in a moment. So after the stifling and confusing press conference from Garth Brooks, Terry decided to pull all of Garth Brooks' merchandise off of his shelves and return them to the distribution centers. And then Mr. Courier took out an ad in the Willamette Week asking the readers to bring down their Garth Brooks merchandise to include posters, VHS tapes, vinyl, and CDs, all with the promise that they're going to barbecue them. Well, that tastes like victory to me. At the end of it all, Mr. Courier was quoted saying, I was eating melted CDs on barbecue buns covered in barbecue sauce. Now that is good eating. But the hometown cuisine didn't stop there. After doing a radio show that night in Seattle, Terry managed to get nine more stores organized between Bellingham and San Diego, setting up barbecues of their own. And by the end of it all, Terry's protests had grabbed the attention of People, CNN, and MTV. And within weeks, distribution centers had rescinded the policy, and everything was right with the world. Or was it? After all the national recognition and the rescinding of the policy, Terry had decided to put Garth Brooks back on the shelf. Before the dust could even settle on the fallout, Garth Brooks went on live television stating, People should stand up for what they believe, but those people in Portland were still selling my CDs during the barbecue. Needless to say, Mr. Courier was not having this, and to this day still does not sell the artist in his store. Whoop-de-doo! What does it all mean? I'm getting to that. As Mr. Courier made his stops along the Great Barbecue Tour, he realized that other shop owners and other fans shared his outlook and had similar feelings about other artists themselves. So with the gift of quick intellect, Terry came up with the proposal and created the Coalition of Independent Record Stores, a sort of support group. This was the first of three independent coalitions that exist today and are the three that make up the event that we like to call Record Store Day. He did it! Oh, he did it! He connected Record Store Day with a barbecue! If you're wanting to participate in this year's Record Store Days, your days are August 29th, September 26th, and October 24th. And you can get more information at www.recordstoreday.com and another good history at wweek.com, Matthew Singer's article about Record Store Day and Terry Courier. 
Well, I hope you all had fun on this journey, but it's time for me to go drop some vinyl. So thank you for stopping by our backyard and I'll catch you on the other side. In this interview, we hear from Andrea Walker with Beneficial State Bank. Andrea and Jefferson talk about how Beneficial State Bank invests in communities, their partnership with the Black Resilience Fund, and swimming in a pool of money. Here's more. Let us get straight started with an interview with Andrea Walker. Andrea Walker, Associate Vice President, Creative Media Evangelist. I think that's a fancy way of saying community relations for Beneficial State Bank. And we'll talk about what Beneficial State Bank is or give Andrea a chance to do that to discuss about their upcoming partnership with Brown Hope and the Black Resilience Fund. Let's get to Andrea. Andrea, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. How are you doing? I am well. First of all, just give a little bit of a background, if you would, on Beneficial State Bank. I know the story to some degree, and some people might, but I bet you there's some people who don't. Yeah, absolutely. Love to. Thanks for having us on. So uh, Beneficial State Bank is a mission-aligned community bank with a triple bottom line. So that means our goal is to serve social justice and environmental well-being. At the same time, we want to make sure we're always financially sustainable. So we are a community development financial institution and a certified B corporation, and we provide um, fair and transparent banking services to under-resourced communities. So we started in, in 2007, and we serve California, Oregon, and Washington State. And this is, uh, it's, 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 is it Cat Taylor and, yes. uh, and Tom Steyer? So people are aware Correct. of Tom Steyer, who ran for president. They obviously started this well before that, and Cat Taylor runs the Beneficial State Bank. As I recall, it, uh, it is owned by, I mean, it, it's itself a bank, but then sh- the majority shares of it are owned by a nonprofit organization. Is that how it's set up? Yeah, absolutely. That is correct. Our co-founders, um, Kat Taylor and Tom Steyer, started the bank. And these days, our CEO is, is Randall Leach. She's based in Portland there. Um, but really, what's unique about us is that we have three design features that make us stand out from other uh, banks, especially other community banks. And one of them is what you mentioned. The first one is our ownership structure. Uh, we are The economic rights are owned by nonprofit beneficial state foundation um, and that and they are separately governed um, and so when dividends flow back to the foundation they are mandated to put it back into the community um, through uh, organ- uh, programs um, sponsorships really a community focus so we like to say that the share our shareholders are the community instead of one individual um, making sure we maximize profits for their personal gain. Really quickly, the other two design features are lending practice. So at any given moment, we mandate ourselves to ensure that at least 75% of our loans outstanding are going to uh, businesses, nonprofits that are focused on the new economy. So that's healthy foods and um, climate change organizations and, and healthy energy. Um, and the third is radical transparency. So anything we can share we we want to share we want this model to be um, a norm of the banking industry instead of um, one that's unusual how do you make it a norm how do you turn this from seventh generation toilet paper you know sort of, sort of a neat <laughs> thing that some you know some good-hearted fluffy-hearted types decide oh, i'm gonna bank with this nice bank and actually get it to scale because it seems to me trying to compete with bank of america and wells fargo you know the bank of america wells fargo or, or they're going to be bank of america and wells fargo 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You you hit on um, a lot of the things that keep us up <laughs> for the, since 2007. Um, I'd say really what we're really focused on is serving purpose-driven organizations. I think this moment and so, so many um, moments leading up to where we are today, people have been more awakened to what their deposits support and what their deposits fund. Um, we will never get as big as Wells Fargo and, and, and Chase, but we do believe that as individuals who put our deposits at these organizations, at these banks, we have a right to uh, have a say on how our deposits are used. So we've really seen an influx and an awakening of folks that are questioning how deposits are, are, are being used. So if you're advocating for climate change, but you're not realizing that your deposits are going towards um, activities that completely go against that, you know, pulling back the veil is one piece of it um, for sure. So, so it's a movement of individuals and not just um, us unusually <laughs> modeled banks. Um, another piece of it is that we're constantly, um, constantly speaking out on practices, systematic um, issues. So we are part of a number of membership organizations and movements that help solve this problem, be it from a policy level, um, all the way down to um, uh, how, how you treat your employees, for instance. So I'll give you an example. We are, um, our, our co-founder, Kat Taylor, is also the chairwoman of the Community Development Banking Association, which lobbies in DC on behalf of community banks. So really aligning ourselves with allies in the community banking space so that we can get policies changed to make it more favorable for community banks to serve the populations that really need us. Should the state or should cities get in the banking business? Should we have public banking? Yeah, that's a really great question. We actually have a policy and advocacy group um, at Beneficial State Foundation that goes deep into that and they're the experts on that. But overall, we say yes. We say that there is a place for all types of banks. We need a variety of banks to serve the variety of needs of our community. It's not a one size fits all. So we do think there is space for a public bank. We have advocated for that. Um, our co-founder, Kat Taylor, is on a number of um, working groups as well as our policy and advocacy um, team to, to support what a public bank could look like. So yeah, we do think there's space for that. You're partnering with the Black Resilience Fund and or Brown Hope. I think Brown Hope is now the organization where that Correct. is housed. Correct. Talk to us mm -hmm. about, and if people haven't been following the Black Resi Resilience Fund, uh, it started out as a goal. Maybe the initial goal was a half a million dollars. Now they've raised almost $1.6 million, restated their goal. At one point, they jumped the goal to a million. Now I think the goal is 1.8. I don't know if the yeah. goal is going to stay at 1.8, if the goal is going to keep going up as long as people are still willing to give money. That's my sure. current, that's, that's currently what I'm wondering about and even guessing. But what is the, tell us, tell us about the partnership with the Black Resilience Fund. If you have to fill in some more about the fund, feel free to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Black Resilience Fund is a emergency fund for Black Port Portlanders. Um, it's focused on healing the community um, in, in providing small, um, uh, small payments, anywhere from $13 to $300 to applicants who are having hardship from anything from um, needing to pay rent, to groceries, to uh, fixing things at, at their home. Um, the idea of it is 
we're living through two pandemics right now and the black community is hit um is one of the communities that is hit the hardest from all of this um so the idea is that we want immediate relief or the black resilience fund started with the goal of providing immediately immediate relief for those who need it but that relief coming from their neighbors so the idea is that a community can heal itself it's not looking for anyone else to swoop in and save it the community uh it's a structure for one person to be able to help the next person but to be able to do it the next day with no bureaucracy involved um no wait times um as we know you know unemployment it's it's hard to even get through to unemployment right now amongst a plethora of other issues so what cameron and his co-founders and the team and the many volunteers that they have there really wanted to do was provide immediate relief to black portlanders and you can uh, find out more about that at the blackresiliencefund.com and what's going to be your role what's the the i don't mean just andrea walker but what is the uh, beneficial state bank role now just to accept the deposits what do you do now yeah, so we are we are their bank, um, and 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 so happy to partner with them on that. Um, as I was talking to Cameron uh, uh, early in June, we were sort of brainstorming of you know how can we share the successes that the Black Resilience Fund is currently having and has had to date. As you already mentioned, they've raised one hundred and five million dollars to date, and this then they started they launched on 100, June 100, 105 or 1.5. Uh, well, excuse me, 1.5, 1.5 okay. million. $105 million, that's a lot. <laughs> that would be amazing. I'm, you I'm could buy a bank for that. Out there. I'm you'd, be depositing, <laughs> you'd be depositing your money with Cameron. <laughs> yeah, putting positive vibes out there. But 1.5 million, um, and it's been distributed in increments of about up to $300, currently to 4,200 applicants um, throughout five counties. And so as you mentioned, the, the, the goal is to... Um, get up to about just under $2 million so they can serve up to 10,000 Black Portlanders. Um, so what we're, what we're doing is on September 17th, we're partnering to host a webinar open to anyone who wants to learn and take the ideas and strategies that Cameron and the Black Resilience Fund have used to raise money so far and create similar initiatives in their community. So the webinar on the 17th will serve as a sort of like a blueprint for how people can come together and replicate this in their in their own communities. Um, this is this has the opportunity to sort of scale and, and, and take new form in communities all throughout the United States. So what we're doing is leveraging, um, given where we sit in the world, we meet so many purpose-driven, amazing um, companies, social enterprises, and nonprofits that are already doing great work in their own community. So we believe that bringing them together with Cameron where he can teach the strategies that have worked for them will will lead to even more Black Resilience Funds across um, across the, the West Coast and hopefully further than that. So just really quickly, um, I'll note that on the 17th, joining that particular webinar, of course, will be Cameron, the Oregon Community Foundation, which has been a huge partner of the Black Resilience Fund. There'll be about three Black Resilience Fund volunteers, and then also our co-founder and board chair, Kat Taylor, will be moderating the discussion. So you can sign up for that at theblackresiliencefund.com backslash webinar. 
Let me ask, uh, and we're talking to Andrew Walker with Beneficial State Bank about their partnership with the Black Resilience Fund. Is one of the services that Beneficial State Bank offers, if somebody has an unanticipatedly large degree of deposits, like a big amount of money that they kind of didn't anticipate, is one of the services you offer putting it in some form of a uh, empty swimming pool so that the uh, recipient of that money can in fact go ahead and like swan dive into it and kind of bathe in it like Scrooge McDuck. Is that one of the <laughs> things that, that Beneficial State Bank provides benefit for? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a fun experience to actually be able to do that? Yeah. So I th- how I'd characterize it is if someone had a large pool of money and they wanted to ensure that it's being used to support things that are aligned with their interests, that are aligned with their um, personal goals and social values, then absolutely they can put um, large deposits with us. And if it needs to be um, completely insured, we do have a program called CDARS that allows us to spread it out and make sure that all of it is insured beyond the $250,000 that FDIC insures uh, per institution. So Absolutely, we have the opportunity where you can align your finances with your values and make sure that your deposits are being put to um, what's going to heal the community in our environment. You're clearly a professional. You gave that you gave that question a degree of respect. <laughs> you, 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 you managed to give an answer to a question that sounded like a reasonable answer to an entirely unreasonable question. <laughs> But it also, but it sounds like you don't have the swimming pool service. You do not have the Scrooge McDuck bathing in cash proposal. And I don't know that the FC. I think would FDIC would the would the FDIC continue to uh, insure the money if in fact you were bathing in it? I think maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I think that's questionable. I think they may frown upon that and call us in and have a little chat with us. Andrea Walker, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for your work. Appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you so much for all you guys do over there. We really, really appreciate it as well. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks to BT and Andrea for joining Local, and thank you for listening to Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. X-Ray.